Time for our children to head off for children's worship. We're going to begin today a four-week sermon series on the topic of forgiveness. And so today, of course, we're going to start by thinking about uh, God's forgiveness for us. And our text is Psalm 130. Hear God's words for you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is great power to redeem. It is He who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may remember from literature in high school or college, Ogden Nash, a humorist who wrote this line, and I suspect, Jeff, can I get you to turn that down a little bit? It's a little bit echoey. He wrote this line, and I suspect that he intended it to be funny, but I'm also not sure it wasn't something he really believed. He said, when I consider how my life is spent, I hardly ever need repent. There are a lot of other folks that feel like that too. It's a common sentiment in our world. Repent and repentance implies that there is something in our lives that we need to be sorry for. Something we need to be forgiven for. And a lot of people aren't at all sure they've done anything that's bad enough to really need forgiveness. I'm convinced of two things, and they're going to sound contradictory when I first say them, but I think they really go together. The first is that a great many people are not sure they've done anything bad enough to require repentance. And over the centuries, the church has made this mistaken need of making repentance somehow being by heaping people with guilt and shame, often for things which aren't sinful, they're just human. And the church has not done a very good job sometimes in helping people to understand there is a place for real guilt. There is a place where we ought to be ashamed for what we've done. But we don't gain very much when we try to heap shame and guilt on people. First of all, nobody takes that very well. And second of all, it's not effective. That's not the way people come to repentance. Shaming just creates resentment. Now, the second thing sounds like it doesn't go, but I think it does, while a lot of people will deny their need to repent, there is also frequently in everybody's life this deep need 
this sense that we need to make amends, to find some sort of a spiritual context for our lives. And part of that is to make amends for wrongdoing. Most of you know that AA meets in our building twice a week. And one of the first things that happen when somebody's a member of AA is they have to go to those they've hurt and ask for forgiveness. While a great many people search in all kinds of places to find this sort of spiritual connection, the truth is some would readily seek out the church if we who claim to practice the faith ourselves were a little more forgiving and a little less judgmental. Because way too often, the church simply goes back and heaps on guilt and shame rather than giving people a chance to know God's forgiveness. The author of the 130th Psalm understands this, and he understands that seeming contradiction We hear this psalm read at funerals because of the opening line, but the truth is it's really about repentance and forgiveness. It's not about death. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. The psalmist is struggling with something in his life that makes him aware that not everything is where it ought to be. It's not all right. He's searching for some place to find assurance. He feels the guilt of what he's done. Hear my cry, O Lord. Listen to my call for help. If you kept a record of our sins, who could escape being condemned? The guilt is real, real enough that he's not sleeping at night and the night seems endless. I wait for the Lord more eagerly than the watchman for the dawn. And then that light of understanding breaks through and he says, but you forgive us so that we might reverently obey you. And the news of that forgiveness is so powerful for him that he then exclaims to the nation of Israel, Israel, trust in the Lord for in his love, and that is in the translation I read for you, his steadfast love, the chesed of God, and he is always willing to rescue and forgive. I'm convinced that deep down inside every person, even though it is often well hidden, there is a desire to have this kind of assurance that the things we know we've done wrong or failed to do can be forgiven and we can get right with God. There's something in each one of us, though maybe it's all but disappeared from a few, that simply cannot stand being outside that proper relationship. Everything is wrong when we're not right with God. And we do other things and we push it aside and we pretend it's not true. But that's sort of the core of of who human beings are. And the trouble, of course, is that the wrongs that we do, the sins that we commit, really does build up this barrier between us and God. And we feel rejected whether or not God's rejected us or not. And because of this deep-seated need for us to know forgiveness from God and ultimately from each other, I want to take some time this summer to think about this, to talk about this with you. And it really, of course, all comes down to this idea of God's gift of grace for people like us.
A part of the reason we struggle with this need for repentance is because while we know we're not perfect, we do believe that we're a little better than, say, the average run-of-the-mill, more obvious sinner. Can we acknowledge that? For all, I know, for all I know, nobody in this room has ever committed great fraud. Nobody's been in prison for murder. You haven't done any of those terrible things that we normally think of as being the high sins. And so it's really easy. Somebody named another one and I didn't hear it. (laughs) Um, So it's easy if we're not in that category to say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. And you've heard it. You've heard people say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm as good as those people who call themselves Christians. I may not be a saint, but I'm better than those hypocrites that go to church. And the truth is, they may be right. They may actually be correct. Any Christian worth his or her name knows that we're neither perfect nor saint. It's not their catalog of good deeds, but God's forgiveness that makes the difference. The first requirement for anybody in becoming a Christian and becoming a member of the church is that we acknowledge that we are not right with God and we can never get right with God except that God makes us right with Him through Jesus Christ. The church is not supposed to be the country club for all us sainted folks. It really is the hospital where sinners come to get well. And as we think about that more and more, we realize the purpose and the nature of the church. Nobody really experiences the, sin, the sinfulness of their own life until something happens that brings us face to face with that sense of God's holiness and righteousness. And I think one of the classic examples of that is found in the Old Testament when we read in the beginning of Isaiah. Um, For those of you who don't know, Isaiah is a member of the aristocracy. He knows the king. He is there in the temple. He's got power and clout. He's a special admirer of King Uzziah. But one day there's a problem. Uzziah contracts leprosy. And in those days, whatever leprosy was or was not, it was seen as a judgment of God. And whatever he caught, it ended up killing him. And so here is the beloved king who has told people and encouraged people to follow God who dies under this cloud of what seems to be some sort of a reproach. And Isaiah is devastated. He goes to the temple looking for answers. And in that place of worship, and we don't know exactly what happened to him there, but in that place of worship, he suddenly remembers that there behind the Holy of Holies is God. And he says those lines that we've read so often, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
There's something about recognizing who we are. And maybe for the first time, Isaiah recognized that he wasn't the perfect person he wanted to be. And there in the temple, he recognizes that there are some things in his life that really do need to be fixed. And in the great symbolism of that chapter, the sixth chapter, anybody wants to go look it up and read it. But anybody, in the great symbolism of Isaiah, the, the seraphim, those uh, creatures who may represent angels, but they may represent some other sort of a something around the heavenly throne, takes a coal from the fire with tongs and says, as it puts it against his mouth, your sins are forgiven. And Isaiah walks away knowing that he can be a different person. There are a lot of people in this world who tell us that a sense of sin and the need for forgiveness is unhealthy. That it's a morbid preoccupation that Christians put on the world. That if we would just get our minds right psychologically, we wouldn't have this problem. But it's not true. It can be one of the most personally freeing, creative experiences you can have to know Forgiveness. And anybody in this room who's known it understands that. Now, as we said, there are those who have some question about the need for forgiveness. But there's also a number of people who says, is it really possible for God to forgive? We say it, but is it really possible for God to grant forgiveness? Just as there are those who don't think they need forgiveness, there are also those whose lives are in such a mess, or maybe they just think their lives are in such a mess, that they're not sure that they are in touch with God enough for God to grant forgiveness. Maybe I'm just too awful for God to forgive me. And there are tons of people in our world who feel like that. We live in a world that is governed, for the most part, by natural law. There is cause and there is effect. And if this happens, that will happen. And we tend to look on the world that way. In such a world, how does a righteous God make the decision to grant forgiveness to folks like that or like me or like you? The great poem from Omar Khayyam, The Moving Finger Writes and Having Writ Moves On, nor all your piety and wit can lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a single word of it. We can't change the past. We cannot change the stuff we've done that we're ashamed of. We cannot fix it. It's not possible for us. So how do we find forgiveness in a scheme like this? God would seem to be shut out of a universe that He's created by His own law. Does anybody in the room play chess? Got a chess player anywhere? Okay, I see a chess. I, I learned to play chess as a child. And then later, um, as a teenager, uh, became friends with the pastor of the church I was in at the time. And we would go and play chess together once a week. Well, most of you have probably heard of Johann Goethe's twin plays called Faust. 
Faust is the fellow who sells his soul to the devil for power and wealth and glory. And while many people have told that tale, there's also been a number who have decided that they would try to paint the story. And almost always in the painting, the painting is depicted as a chess match. I went online this week to try to find the the particular painting I was looking for, and I found a dozen of them. So here is Faust playing chess with the devil. And it is clear that he is either almost lost or the game is already over and it's in checkmate. And so here is this, this man Faust with this despair on his face and a chessboard set up between them. Lots of folks looked at the painting. But one day into the gallery where it hung came a chess master. And he looks at the despair on the face of Faust. But finally he focuses upon the board. Everybody had said the game is over. But the chess master said suddenly and to everybody's surprise, it's a lie. The king and the knight have another move. It's not over. And that really is what God does for us. God in Jesus Christ had another move. And what was the move? To become like us. To live like us and ultimately to die and rise for us. God had another move. Forgiveness is possible. When anybody says God can't forgive you for all those terrible things you've done, just know it's a lie. It's not true. Even for, even for those folks that we call the worst of the worst. You know how hard it is, and we'll talk about this in a, in a future sermon. You know how hard, it is, how hard it is for us to forgive the atrocious acts we see committed on humanity? We want them punished, Right? Even that can know the forgiveness of God. But some will go another step and they will say, is it right for God to be so forgiving? You know, maybe, maybe God can forgive, but should God forgive? Should God forgive people who flaunt not only God's laws, but the way God has made humanity in God's face. If God passes over sin, if God doesn't take sin seriously, if He restores broken relationships between us and Himself, as Jesus talks about, isn't God really encouraging sin? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul was asked. And Paul says he was asked, where sin increases, does grace abound all the more? And Paul says, absolutely not. That's not what we're talking about here. But the question still is, is the forgiveness of God either logical or is it fair? Well, from a human point of view, it probably isn't fair. From a human point of view, we probably deserve 
whatever we get. But God does not offer us cheap, easy forgiveness while He offers us real forgiveness. God doesn't make light of sin. Is it making light of sin to choose to come to earth and become a human being and die for us? Is it making light of sin that God in Christ takes our sins upon Himself, whatever that means, on the cross? And God bears whatever we understand that penalty to be. It's not making light of sin when God Himself pays the bill. We Christians know that. We sometimes have a really hard time expressing that. But the cost of forgiveness comes in the person and the nature and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Without it, without it, there is no forgiveness for us. And that good news of forgiveness is the message we've got for the world. If we as individuals, if we as the church could learn to quit trying to shame people, but offer people real, honest-to-God connection with the Almighty and with those who've already experienced it. It's called grace. And that really is what it's all about, a hard message for us to hear. But it is the most freeing message we'll ever experience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.